Well, we're in Jonah. We're not going very fast. We will cover all of chapter 2 next week. Uh, the good news is we'll take two weeks in chapter 2, but there'll be two weeks of covering the whole thing, so don't think that we're going to go verse by verse the whole time. But as Brian Loney and I have been thinking about this sermon series, we have decided to stop here and, and to take our time in this one verse that Katie read. And I had Katie also read the other place where this is mentioned in the Bible, specifically mentioned the three days and the three nights Jonah in the belly of the whale is in uh, Matthew 12. Um, if you look in your Bibles and study your footnotes, you can also note that the sign of Jonah is also mentioned in Luke and also in another place in Matthew 16, but both of them in many ways build off of this section right here. Um, we have said that we're in the book of Jonah because through the book of Jonah, we're going to find that God confronts us with his character and in so doing reveals not only himself but us as well. I am more and more convinced that this is a good season for us to be in the book of Jonah um, because I'm excited to see how the Lord generates in us a desire to reach out to our friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. Um, you know that that's at the heart of Jonah. Jonah sent to Nineveh to call judgment down on Nineveh. And it, the reason that God would have sent a preacher is because of the opportunity for, the re, for repentance. And indeed, you know that in the third chapter, that's, in, that's what happens. Um, but... I'm excited to see how God continues to change our hearts, yours and mine. And I want you to know that mine is being challenged tremendously as I look at this book of Jonah. Um, as we confront the character of God, specifically what I want you to see today is this. This is the main theme in one verse. That God uses whatever means he desires to reveal himself to whomever he desires. I want to say it one more time so that you hear it. This is the main theme, I think, of Jonah 1.17. That God uses whatever means he desires to reveal himself to whomever he desires. I want you to note that the book of Jonah isn't about a great fish. This might be the only thing that you know about Jonah. That there was a prophet who was sent by God to another country and he was swallowed by a fish and got vomited up on land and then went. I remember as a kid thinking, somebody once told me that he must have been bleached completely in his skin as he came out of the acids of the stomach of the whale and, and, and spat up upon the land and, and had gone into Nineveh. I remember that thinking that that's what this is about. But it's not about that. It's about a great God and the links that this God will go to make himself known. And known to his people, even as he calls his people to make him known to others. There is the presence of miracles in this story. And what's interesting is that the presence of miracles in this story not only cause you to reflect on your belief in the supernatural, but do I believe in a supernatural reality that's directed by a personal God and one who desires to reveal himself? I want to show you two realities of the Bible through this passage. First is the significance of events. That's the first thing, the significance of events. And the second is the sign of hope. Why should you and I sit in this verse? 
I was listening to some lectures this week, as ministers do, and this one minister said that he learned from another scholar that in Hebrew, and in Hebrew narrative particularly, there's not a word that's wasted. And it's not often that you get to see that by sitting in a verse. But my hope is that if we see that God uses whatever means he desires to reveal himself to whomever he desires, then we're going to be set free into a new God reality, a new reality of who God is, which will in turn not only help us to worship him rightly, but will move us with his heart toward the world in which he has placed us. So what do we do with this before we jump into it? Again, the two things, uh, the significance of events, and secondly, the sign of hope. Well, we can't skip over this hurdle of miracle. And I just want to say three brief comments about miracles quickly. Miracle defined by Webster, extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs, or possibly this idea of extremely outstanding and unusual events. In the defense of miracles, C.S. Lewis writes a long book, not, not super long, many chapters anyway, called Miracles, and in it, he argues against a position called naturalists versus supernaturalists, the ones who believe that the world is a closed system and that everything happens contingent on something else that has happened in its place. And if we were wise enough, we could deduce all of those connections, but everything is interrelated and it's a closed system, the naturalist. The supernaturalist being that this world that we know of as nature and creation is regularly intervened into by the God of that creation, that there is something that exists outside of nature, This idea of naturalism was made popular in the 18th century by a philosopher named David Hume. And he essentially says, look, miracles violate the natural laws. And without getting deep into his argument, what he challenges is he says, look, if you look at the facts that we observe and you add them all up, all people die, right? And then you subtract from that set of facts an individual who claims to have been brought back to life and you subtract that observation from the multiple observations that all people die and they don't come back to life, the idea of believing a miracle, the facts that have to be accepted are that there is no such thing as, say, the resurrection in that regard. It's almost this mathematical equation of facts one compared to the other. Well, in this book of miracles, C.S. Lewis challenges this idea that reason and in turn morality can come from a closed system of cause and effect. And this idea has been taken on further by philosophers since then. One guy that I had the privilege of of meeting one time was a guy named Alvin Plantinga. And I don't know if I've told you this, but when I worked at Harvard, I was invited to a discussion and Plantinga came and he wrote this groundbreaking book in 2000 called Warranted Christian Belief. And in it, he proves philosophically, and, and children, this is the thing that blew my mind. I thought I was going to an argument kind of lecture. 
he filled the board with letters and numbers and equations. And he filled one board and it was almost like the picture of the school where he pulls the board down and starts writing on the next board and then goes to the next board. And after an hour and a half, of which I was lost after the first two minutes of that lecture, he took this argument of Lewis's and expanded on it and proved the ability that faith is warranted. But the question about miracles has to be asked of you. Do you believe that the world is a closed system in which there's nothing that interacts about it from the outside? Or do you believe that there is supernatural interaction? Did you know that the current belief in miracles in the United States is between 70 and 80% of people believe in miracles? Isn't that amazing? I, I did some research and I found this one article. It was actually an interview with Neil Conan on NPR where he interviewed the guy from the Pew Trust. And, and he said, yeah, it was kind of shocking to us that, that 79, and this was the time, I, it was like, it's, it's almost seven, eight years ago now, but it, 79% of adults believe in miracles and the same amount of millennials, younger generations, also believe in miracles. In, in fact, he said that 50% of those who are religiously nuns, don't, don't even relate to faith, actually believe in miracles. Luke and I were talking about it this week, and we were wondering, is it because of the elevation and the validity of our sense of experience? And there are things that don't match with our understandings of the world. So even if you would define yourself as just spiritual and, and not you know, connected to a specific faith, there are things that happen in your lives that you go, that is outstanding and different. What I want to say is that the real hurdle for Jonah in this book of Jonah isn't the presence of miracles in it. But it's the presence of a personal God working out events in an individual's life. That's what's startling about the book of Jonah. C.S. Lewis says this, If we speak about beauty and truth and goodness or about a God who is simply the indwelling principle of these, we speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we are all parts, a pool of generalized spirituality, to which we can all flow, and you will command friendly interest. But the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and performs particular actions. Jonah asks us, is God allowed to be God? Is there room for a God who purposes and performs particular actions in your life, in your understanding about reality. Again, we have two points. Here they are. The first is the significance of events. We read right here in Jonah 1:17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. There it is. The significance of the event. The hurdle of the story of Jonah is that God bursts our bubbles of our perceived sense of independence and freedom. We read right here that God appointed a fish. 
What's interesting is it's the first of four times that God appoints something in the book of Jonah. The first is here in verse 17, God appoints a fish, and the other three we're going to see in chapter 4, where God appoints a plant to grow up overnight and provide shade to Jonah. Another miraculous event. That God then appoints a worm to chew the plant to die so that he gets after Jonah and uncovers more of Jonah's heart for Jonah. And then finally that he appoints a scorching wind. What is interesting is that God intervenes. Jonah was determined to die, but God was in control. Jonah did not think if you throw me overboard to the sailors, a fish will swallow me. I'll live in the belly of a fish and get spat up on land. Everything will be okay. Jonah was determined to die. The sailors certainly thought that they were putting Jonah to death. But when you delve into Scripture about what God appoints, it's everything from his appointing of his steadfast love and faithfulness over his king in Psalm 61 to the determining and the appointment of every number of stars in the heavens. That the God of the Bible is a God who is interactive in the minutia as well as in the grandeur of all of life. In the book of Jonah, we come face to face with what we call the providence of God. God uses whatever means he desires. God uses whatever means he desires. Listen to how the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this idea of providence. We've been going through this as a staff. It's been a lot of fun. And this comes from the fifth chapter on providence. And this is what it says. God, the great creator of all things, and I'm not going to say doth because we never say doth. I'm going to say does. So in case you go read it and you go, Bradley didn't say doth. That's true. Does, this God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. That means that nothing changes God's will. And it is to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And a couple sentences later, it simply says this, God makes use of means. We know why it rains. Because weather and fronts of weather collide into each other. I met somebody two, years ago, or two weeks ago who literally thought that the sound of thunder was the sound of clouds crashing into each other. Didn't have any idea that the sound of thunder was actually the result of lightning, right? We know that it rains when weather patterns come into each other. But what this says is that God makes use of means, yet he is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. We could go over numerous examples in Scripture of this. Two of the ones that stood out to me is that you actually have uh, this King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the kings of Babylon, who at one point in his life 
is made to go crazy and eat grass for seven years. And when he is set free and brought back into his mind, he praises God, the God that David has made known to him. And he says, this God does according to his will and no one can stop his hand is what he says. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 135 in one other place, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. God's providential actions can offend us. They offend us because if God is sovereign, it means that you and I are not. God's providential actions can bewilder us. Even as Christians, we can think, what is God doing? I listened to uh, a conference with one of my old professors, a guy named Paul Lim, who is now a professor at Vanderbilt University. And he was speaking at a conference that was attended by Christians and non-Christians alike. And he said, look, I, I'm an academic. I'm at Vanderbilt University. I study the history of religion. And I just want to tell you how I was converted. And he said that when he came to faith, he was filled with joy. But he said, I was more confused coming to faith than I was beforehand. God's sovereign acts can bewilder us. But I want to say that in the end, God's sovereign acts are the only source for us of lasting comfort. Remember, the significance of events comes from this section of this passage that God sends and appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. That God uses whatever means he desires to reveal himself to whomever he desires. And that's what I want to look at now. This idea that he reveals himself to whomever he desires. And that we see in this a sign of hope. This is the second thing that I want you to see. The first is the significance of events. But the second is a sign of hope. Simply read, the second half of this verse says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What do we see here? That death was not to be the end for Jonah, and nor is it for anyone to whom the Lord desires to reveal himself. That's why this is a sign of hope. Verse 117 means the story isn't over, right? There's a great storm. We've heard about this storm. We have heard that they couldn't determine which God to pray to to settle the storm. And so they threw Jonah overboard. And as soon as they threw Jonah overboard, he either was taken by a whale right away and they saw it, or he sank and they never saw it. Jonah chapter 2 would lead you to believe that Jonah sank and that they never saw it, but the seas went flat. And you might have thought that the story was over, but the very fact that it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three, three nights means the story's not over. That Jonah is getting out of the belly of the fish. And this is a shocking turn of events in the story of Jonah. 
It is a shocking turn of events because God has more to teach. He has more to reveal about himself. Now, the reason that I call this a sign of hope and that this ought to be a sign of hope for us, even in the significance of events where God's providence is never thwarted,